0: Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to present my interview with distinguished playwright and librettist David Henry Huang, Among David Henry Huang's plays are M. Butterfly, Face Value, Golden Child, Kung Fu, The Dance and the Railroad, Yellow Face, Rich Relations, and Sound and Beauty. He has also penned the books for musicals including Soft Power, Aida, Tarzan, and the revised version of Flower Drum Song. And now, without further ado, please join me in welcoming David Henry Huang. Well, so I'd love to begin by asking you, how did you first become interested in playwriting?
1: Um, So I was uh, raised in a family that had a a lot of music. Uh, My mother was a pianist. My sister is a cellist. I was a violinist. um, But I was not really a theater family, Um, so my first exposure to theater was really playing in the pit orchestra of um, musicals in high school. And I noticed that I um, liked to kind of stay behind after the orchestra was dismissed and listen to the director give notes. So there was something about the whole theatrical process that interested me even back then. Uh, And then when I got to college, I Um, they, they gave us this form and they said, you know, what would you like to try doing that you've never done before? And I wrote journalism and playwriting. Uh Um, and I went to to Stanford, um, which at the time didn't have any, um, playwriting classes. So I just started writing plays in my spare time. Um, and I found a professor, uh, who was willing to take a look at them. And he told me that they were really bad, which they Uh were. Um, but the same professor was a really good guy. Uh, his name was, uh, John Lerrer. He just passed away, uh, fairly recently. And, uh, John, um, helped me to design a playwriting major, um, right. in, in uh, within the creative writing department, which he was running at the time. And, um, so I basically saw as many plays and read as many plays as I could. And that became, um, my education.
0: And were there playwrights whose work especially sort of spoke to you or you want to? Yeah,
1: Um, I think the I was became very interested in um, people like, you know, Tom Stoppard and Harold Pinter and also Sam Shepard. And then I had the opportunity to study with Sam Um, the summer between my junior and senior year in college. Um, I'm originally from Los Angeles, and I was home in LA, and I saw an ad in the paper that said, Study Playwriting with Sam Shepard. And I, of course, was a big fan. So I clipped this thing and sent it in. And it was the first year of what eventually became a pretty prominent uh, theatrical event in Southern California called the Padua Hills Playwrights Festival. But this was only the first year that they ever tried to do it. So there were only two of us that applied to be students. So we both got in. And um, at Padua, I got to study not only with Sam, but with, um, I think, arguably the great playwriting teacher of her generation, uh, Maria Irene Fornes. Um, And they taught me to write more from uh, my subconscious. That is to not be afraid of not making sense, you know, as as, as David Byrne puts it. Um, and um, that there are things that my subconscious knows that my conscious mind hasn't figured out yet. Um, and in my case, I started to, when I started doing some of these exercises, um, I realized that I was writing about some of my own experiences in terms of uh, being uh, an Asian American, being a first generation uh, American, the the child of immigrants, and that there were issues like, um, you know, like immigration and assimilation and racism, which were important to me. But my conscious mind hadn't figured that out yet. And so ever since then playwriting has been a way for me to find out um, what I know, but I don't yet know that I know.
0: Uh That's
1: very interesting.
0: And I would be curious to know though, too, what were some of the subjects of those plays that you wrote early on before you took these lessons?
1: So before I went to Padua, um, I, you know, I think I was very sort of influenced by Stoppard. Um, uh, uh, So I was like writing plays about the existence of God. And, (laughs) and I also grew up in um an an evangelical Christian families and I was um in the process of uh detaching from that faith um so in some sense I was was writing about something that was relevant to what I was going through but I didn't know that I had any interest in writing about uh, Asian American characters or stories
0: and then so how did um, FOB, one of your early plays come to be produced at the public theater?
1: Yeah, um so FOB is a play that I started writing at Padua. Oh. And um I then, because I realized I was, you know, going to be interested in Asian American subjects. um and this was, you know, this was like in the late 70s, so there wasn't a lot of, like what we now call Asian American studies, uh, barely existed and 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 certainly didn't exist at Stanford so uh, but we did have um, sort of what were called ethnic theme dorms um, at the time and there was in sort of an Asian American theme dorm it still exists today at Stanford Um, so I, uh, I, I I signed up to live there my senior year and one of the things that happened in those days at Stanford is that the dorms would tend to do musicals in the spring, um, and there is something called the undergraduate. I have a daughter who goes there now, and so I know they they don't have this anymore. But um, they um, there's something called the undergraduate lighting project, and you could you know rent uh, or I guess you don't have to pay. You could check out uh, like a really simple lighting grid and some instruments, um, and you put on a show in the, the lounge of uh, lounge of your dorm. So I decided to write this play to be done in the lounge of my dorm called FOB. And I directed it. Um, And at the same time, I also sent it to a few different places, um, including the Eugene O'Neill Playwrights Festival, which happens every year in Waterford, Connecticut, um, and uh, and the Public Theater um, and South Coast Rep um and uh, center theater group Mark taper perform in Los Angeles um so and, and the play got accepted to be done at the O'Neill uh, in Connecticut so I went there the summer after I just graduated um I I guess I was I'm sorry turning 21 I think I was turning 21 that summer um and then um We also that same summer did a reading of the play for Joe Papp, who was, uh, of course, the founder of the Public Theater and still running it at the time. Um, And the way that happened was that about the time that I was doing the play in my dorm, um, the public had produced a play in which a white actor was cast in an Asian role. And that led to probably the first yellow face protests in new york theater history where the asian actors of that day again we're at this point talking 79 80 who you know there weren't very many of them and they certainly had no power they um protested uh in front of the public theater uh uh uh, on lafayette street and joe who's uh who was really committed to this idea of creating a theater which as he put it would put it looked like new york Um, Joe ended up inviting the protesters into his office, and he hired one of them onto his staff with the brief to find plays for Asian actors. And it was just about that time that my play from the O'Neill came across their desk. So I was really, uh, I I was thinking of myself as the beneficiary of affirmative action because that's what affirmative action is. It uh, identifies a social need and then creates a program to help to redress that need. And my ability to have the door open to me and have a play produced at the public theater when I was 22 um, is kind of a, the 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 juxtaposition of kind of art and social activism.
0: And what was the process like of sort of gaining authority in the professional
1: world at such a young age? Yeah, it was... Um, it, it was it's just unusual. um, and I mean, I think I was able to have the agency that I had uh, uh, in the theater at that age because it was Joe, you know, and and Joe, um, I mean, Joe is a complicated guy. and he certainly could be and there could be intrusive. And there were many stories, you know, there's lots of stories running around about Joe um, about Joe imposing his will on productions. But generally, so with me, he well, we OK, so we did the reading. And Joe took me into his office and said, uh, you know, I like this play, but I have some notes. And he gave me some notes. I didn't actually agree with the notes. Um, But, you know, he's Joe Papp, I want him to like me. Um, And so I didn't really say anything. And he said, okay, so now go write another draft, and then I'll decide if I'm going to produce it. And um, so I went back to uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, where I was living at the time. um, And I waited about six weeks, and I sent him back the exact same script. (laughs) And uh, about 10 days later the phone rings and it's Joe Papp and he says okay the play's great now we're gonna produce it <laughs> so I guess what I I mean I I don't know how I knew how to do that at that age but um I honored his authority in some sense and I, I you know I guess he didn't take notes uh but on his notes um but also kind of held on to what I believe was uh, my vision of the play. And, you know, I, in general, I really believe in rewriting. I'm a big rewriter. I just didn't happen to agree with those notes. So I I somehow had figured out how to filter criticism at that age.
0: Uh, and did you find there was a difference early on when working with an Asian American director like Mako or a white director like Robert Allen Ackerman and
1: so Bob Ackerman directed the show at the at the O'Neill, and he was you know and uh, yes he was a white director and he was you know he was really good and also helped make that connection with Joe because at the time he was a resident director at the Public, um, and uh, and Mako, um, who was one of the founders and uh, the artistic director of East West Players in Los Angeles, the nation's oldest Asian American theater um Mako uh, who is also a great actor and, and and uh Tony nominated for Pacific Overtures um you know there were things that like Mako just had access to in terms of a cultural and artistic knowledge that Bob as great a director as he was just you know didn't so Bob for instance um there's a a, a section in FOB which um, goes into kind of a a Chinese opera vernacular and Bob um, was able to work with actors uh, like uh, uh, the late Ernest Abuba who had some familiarity with the form um, but you know Bob didn't actually know it um, and you know why would he necessarily Um, as opposed to Mako who Yes, he was Japanese, not Chinese, but he had uh, run this theater for a long time and been part of the Asian uh, American acting community, and just had picked up a lot more about the form. And also kind of, uh, I think the the particular kind of cultural dilemmas and angst and, you know, identity crises of the play, um, just the specifics of that, were easier for Mako to kind of immediately tap into on a visceral level.
0: And so early on, I'd be curious to know as well, as well as later, how involved do you like to be
1: in the casting process of your own shows? Yeah, I I, uh, like to be very involved in the casting of my shows. Um, I would say that with. With FOB, I was maybe less involved because say hey, um so John Lone who is a wonderful actor um who people probably know best as having played the title role in Bertolucci's The Last Emperor um John was uh, not a movie star at that point he hadn't done any movies and but uh Mako knew him very well and John was not only or uh, is uh, a, a, an amazing actor, but but had grown up doing Cantonese opera in Hong Kong. So he really just had that skill set. Um, and I had seen John from a distance once when I interned at East West Players, but I didn't really know him and just sort of accepted Maka's casting. Uh, and then uh, Calvin Jung and Ginny Yang were had both done it at the O'Neill and I hadn't been involved in that casting process but they turned out to be wonderful and so I didn't um that one I wasn't so involved with and then my next show was called The Dance on the Railroad and I read it specifically for John Lone and another actor who um uh, did essentially a movement role in FOB uh Ty Ma um, who's subsequently become very like he's plays every, Asian dad on TV nowadays. Um, and so I wrote it for them. Uh, and then the show after that, Family Devotions, which Robert Allen Ackerman did direct, um, that one I was involved in the casting. And ever since then, I've been very involved in casting. I feel like it's um, something that you, it, it's such a critical part of putting the show together, particularly for a premiere. I mean, I don't know that I'm so attentive on subsequent productions, but Certainly, for the first production, um, these are you know there's something, that, the 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 this phrase that an actor originates a part. There's something really significant about that because um, you you build the show on on the actors that you have for that first production, and so the selection becomes particularly significant.
0: And I'd be curious to know how that process changes too, when you're casting the role of DHH in soft power or yellow face or.
1: Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. So lately, you know, over the past, whatever, 10, 10, 12 years uh, I've, I've now started to name the, the, you know, write an autobiographical character and name him after myself. Um, I mean, I don't actually think it's that different. Oddly. Um, it's, because i don't think of the dhh characters as literally being me um certainly in yellowface i'm sort of creating a character which um it, it is like an unreliable version of myself um and then in soft power there is a, a section about where dhh gets stabbed which is very much based on um Uh, my actually having been stabbed in the neck um, in 2015. Um, But other than that, it's kind of a character. Uh, And in a way, what I learned by naming a character after myself is that I did have to make him more of a character. Um, That is um, a person, as opposed to trying to just be truthful because i think it's very hard with autobiographical characters to gain enough objectivity on yourself so uh, but when i name the character after myself oh i then i felt i need to start making stuff up because i don't want to be like just uh i don't want to expose myself that much and it means that the character has to have an arc like any other character they have to Um, start one place, end up another place, um, have problems, solve the problems or not solve the problems. And so it really becomes a fictional character. And therefore, the process of casting is more or less the same as any other.
0: Right. And when you do write characters that are based on other people in your life, be they by name, like I know there are characters in Yellow Face that are named after real people or just sort of inspired by them, what has the process been like? Have you found when those people see the play if they end up
1: doing so? Um, so, the in Yellow Face particularly, there's a lot of um, you know sort of cameos by famous people, but, you know, Mark Lynn Baker or Jane Krakowski, or um, and generally, the rule that I made for myself was if it's a character who a a real person who was in a scene that actually happened and it's my yes uh, it's my version of the scene but um but i think it's true then i didn't need to get their permission but if i was putting them in a scene where i was totally making something up uh, then i felt like i should get their permission because I'm fictionalizing, I'm I'm sort of namejacking them and in order to write something that didn't actually happen. um so I mean one interesting example of that is which ultimately didn't end up in the play, but it's still, I think a, a fun story. Um, so some of your your listeners may not know uh, the play Face, but it, Hinges on a real or the 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 precipitating incident is a real life protest that I was involved in um against the casting of Jonathan Price as the Eurasian engineer character in the original production of Miss Saigon when it came to Broadway. And um there was at the time there uh, uh Cameron McIntosh, the producer, um, was saying oh, we'd had this worldwide search to find someone to play the engineer and we couldn't um and so you know that's why we cast jonathan price and i was in i was taking like like three or four years later i happened to be sharing a car to the airport with uh nicholas heitner who um directed miss saigon and we got into uh, talking about the whole thing and nick said um Oh well, you know, I was really um embarrassed when Cameron said that because you know there there was no worldwide search. We just cast Jonathan Jonathan had done it in London and we wanted to bring him to New York because he was our friend. You know, which is actually a, that's a perfectly good explanation. I mean, it's you know, you can argue with it, but that is that feels, you know, honest and and truthful and that is how these things happen. Um so I wanted to put nick in the play yellow face um and use that quote and in this case it it would be a, a true thing it wasn't something like i was you know making up um, but i felt like i needed to get his permission because i didn't know how he would um you know how that would, would affect his relationship with whatever Cameron mcintosh or or whether he wanted that to be public um so I wrote him an email, and he wrote me right back. And he was like, "No, that's what I said, and you're welcome to use it in the in the play." Um, it turned out that I didn't end up using it in the play because it it just didn't work dramatically. Um, but it's it's interesting that he was comfortable um, having that made public, and then he ended up producing the play. At the National Theater his last year when he was the artistic director there. So um, for me, it's a very um stand-up story about Nicholas Heidner. Oh yes.
0: And of course, a lot of those real characters who you mentioned in that play are based on people from the, your play, Face Value, which was on Broadway. And how did that play first come about? And
1: that play was um Face Value was my because the Miss Saigon protest was um, kind of a ugly culture wars uh, battle, early culture wars battle. And um, just about everybody in the uh, a New York theater community and cultural community sort of came out against our side, you know, that we were it was sort of cultural um, you know, or political correctness to run amok. Um, and so I learned a lot about the kind of anger, um, and, and vitriol that results when you, when you go up against the system, when you, um, when you oppose the, the establishment, like everybody can love you to, to a point. And then when you sort of go up against them, um, everything can shift very quickly. And it really was, uh, unsettling, and it was a, a difficult experience. And so, of course, being a playwright, I decided to write about it. Um, and I wrote a kind of Joe Ortonesque farce about it called Face Value. And because it was right after M. Butterfly, um, and everybody was like, you know, uh, uh, eager to put my work on Broadway, um, it really it just got put up too quickly and I didn't have time to fix it and um the um we tried out in Boston and the headline of the um uh Boston Globe review was M turkey um (laughs) and um so you know it was it was my fault I I should have uh, the, the play just wasn't good enough and I I was sort of hubristic in thinking that I could fix it uh, in a normal rehearsal process. And I really needed to go through a few workshops at the very least. And maybe it, you know. So um, but it was the, the idea was that it was a comedy of mistaken racial identity. Um, because and I wrote it, as I said, like an Orton-esque farce. So it had a farce-like structure, and we're used in farce to, oh, the, you know, the um. Uh, like gender confusion. I mean, it's usually um, at this point we would look at it as being uh, kind of transphobic, a lot of the gender confusion that's in, um, say, British sex farces. Um, but um, but I hadn't seen a kind of farce that turns on uh, racial confusion. Um, and And that seemed appropriate that I was going to tell a story about someone who's sort of dressing up as another race, like a white actor um, playing some something in yellow face. So anyway, so Face Valley totally didn't work and it closed on Broadway in previews um, and nothing actually. closed. Like it was Face Valley closed in previews on Broadway and then nothing, no other show closed in previews on Broadway for like another 12 years. I think there was a, a Suzanne Somers vehicle called Blonde in the Thunderbird. Which was the next show to close in previews? I could be wrong about that. I think so. uh, Twelve, twelve, or you know, twelve to fifteen years later. So it was a, it was a big disaster. Um, but I kept thinking, you know, this far as mistaken racial identity, that's kind of a good idea. Like, um, so I thought about it for I don't know what 10, 12 years, and ended up doing uh, writing Yellowface as that premise, but a completely different kind of uh comedy more like a stage mockumentary. um and that one worked out
0: right. And so you mentioned before that uh Joseph Pack could be sort of anxious a sort of difficult by legend and someone who was even more sort of notorious <laughs> in the theater was John Dexter. and I'd love to ask about your collaboration with him and what that was like.
1: Yeah. You um, you you do your homework very well, um, yeah. So John, uh, for those for those of your listeners who don't know him, uh, John was um sort of a classic old school British director, um, and he was one of the founders of the National Theatre. Um, he ended up being a resident director at the Metropolitan Opera here in New York for quite uh, quite a number of years, and he had a reputation for being uh very uh, difficult to work with and uh could be quite cruel to actors um so when and M. Butterfly um was I I wrote M. Butterfly and to some extent modeled it on a Peter Schaffer structure so if you look at Equus or Amadeus in some sense M. Butterfly has a similar structure and John Dexter had been Peter Schaffer's director for a number of years, including uh, directing the, the uh, directing Eclos. They they had stopped working together by the time Amadeus came along, although John had been involved in Amadeus' kind of development. Um, and so Stuart Ostro, who decided to produce M. Butterfly on Broadway, Stuart suggested Dexter, and every a lot of people were telling me to stay away from him because he had this sort of terrible reputation um so we met in New York and John was very like unlike most directors he didn't like to talk about the work that much he just liked to do it um so the way that we kind of interviewed each other was uh we read the play to each other um I took half the roles and he took half the roles, and uh, and we read it out loud and I am really not a good actor, but um, it does. It's a very visceral workmanlike way to um, understand, does the other person have the same vision for the play as you do? And um, and so that was great. And we 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 got along really well. And throughout the process, um, I did see him be. Uh, he could be quite cruel to uh, to actors. I, I think he was he was tough on B.D. Wong. Um, he and I always got along really well. He was very kind of respectful to me because I'd heard that sometimes he was he could be uh, demeaning to Peter Schaffer. Um, but we got along fine, and I don't know why. I don't you know I don't know why John and I got along well. Um, I always had a good relationship with Joe Pap. Um, so, um, yeah, so my experience with him was quite positive. And, um, after M. Butterfly, he did one more show on Broadway. He did the, uh, a three penny opera with Sting, and then he was going to get, uh, he was having an operation to have a, a pacemaker uh, replaced, um, for his heart and, and passed away on the operating table. So, um, he, he didn't end up living that much longer.
0: And of all of those plays that you were writing early on, was M. Butterfly especially conceived to go to Broadway, or was that the one that you thought most should?
1: You know, I don't know that I ever I, don't know that I ever imagined that I would be a Broadway playwright uh, when I started out. I mean, I, I was in the sort of world of um you know Shepard and Irene fernandez and it was and, and that where where Broadway was sort of considered commercial crap you know and I was like I don't know I'm, I'm not i am not going to work on Broadway um it, so I don't know that I ever thought that was going to happen however I did have um a friend the uh late playwright um harry Condolian, who was a wonderful playwright who deserves to be known uh more today um and uh, harry was uh uh, uh uh one of the you know terrible casualties of um of the the early wave of aids um but um harry said something once that you know if, if you want to have a play that goes to broadway you need to write one of these shows where There's one actor on stage the whole time and everybody else comes in and out, which actually is sort of what M. Butterfly is, Um, maybe unconsciously. But, you know, it was such a gamble for Stuart Ostrow to take the play to Broadway that um, for me to have expected anything like that to be to happen would have been too much.
0: And what was the process like of writing for sort of a male as a female as opposed to a female character?
1: Yeah, um, so you know, M. Butterfly is based on the true story of a French diplomat who had a 20-year affair with a Chinese actress who turned out to be um a a spy and b um physically male. Uh, I basically looked at the I had this conceit that okay, at the 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 diplomat fantasizes that he meets um his madam butterfly and that and that he's you know fantasizes that he's Pinkerton. And at the end of the play, he realizes, oh, actually he is butterfly. So I didn't really think about writing Sung Li Ling, uh, the character that Beatty Wong originated. I didn't think of it as writing a female character per se. I felt I was writing um a, a, a male who was um who was portraying um uh, a female who was would have like a you know sort of a femme manifestation um and that there was I always had this kind of political angle on it or Asian American political angle which is that in order to um uh, deceive the French diplomat he needed to play up to a kind of stereotype of submissive Asian femininity. And that was really my North Star rather than trying to do anything that was more that would be more kind of authentically, um, you know, like a a trans experience. Um, And we talked about this during the 2017 revival that um, at least at that point, we were saying that, well, Sung is uh, essentially a gay man who is very comfortable with a female or femme expression, um, but not trans per se. Um, So today, I think the definition of trans is broader uh, than it was in uh, 2017, but that's how we thought about it back then.
0: And how did the idea for that revival arise? Was it through Julie Taymor or
1: um, no, I think it was basically, um, through, uh, Nell Nugent, the producer, that, uh, Nell, Nell wanted, uh, wanted to do a revival of M. Butterfly, and it had been, uh, uh, almost 30 years at that point. Is that right? Or 20, 30? Anyway, one or the other. Um, I think and, that's... um, thank you. Um, bad math. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it was might have been Nell that that proposed Julie and it was, you know, great that Julie wanted to do it. And what were some of the other conversations
0: around sort of how it could be different in the new light of
1: 2017? Yeah. So you know, the original M butterfly is quite um, you know, gender binary, if you will. It's that um, oh we, you know, we think we think it's a woman and then it's a man. Um <laughs> And, and a lot of the show turns on that surprise. And I think we wanted to create um something that was uh, kind of more nuanced and had a kind of range of um understandings of gender uh, that that you know the, the the sort of spectrum of gender. um, and as a result, it made the relationship uh, between. Sung Li Ling and Gallimar, um more of an actual um kind of love story um that there was we kind of pushed down on the idea that there was sort of real feeling there uh that would have been uh likely over the course of a 20 year relationship uh, as opposed to something where, the Chinese spy was kind of just being utilitarian and trying to accomplish um, accomplish his mission. Um, and so, you know, that's, those are some of the differences. We also wanted to kind of um, foreground the Chinese st- side of the story a, a little more, which is why we introduced um, a, another butterfly trope. Um, so obviously, mad, the Man of Butterfly Trip has always been the play. And we introduced um, a Chinese opera called Butterfly Lovers, which the actual um, Chinese spy, whose name is Shi Pei Pu, um, Shi Pei Pu was, was sort of famous for playing butterfly lovers. And that's also a story about uh, uh, gender fluidity, gender confusion, um, which happens to also have butterfly in the title. So, um, we brought that into the story more to kind of have a Chinese expression of theatricality, um, to balance the Western butterfly trope. And so another, um, distinguished collaborator of yours who I'd love
0: to ask about is Philip Glass. And how did you first come to work together being from sort of different fields and
1: yeah, so Philip um, Philip saw some of my early shows at the public theater. Um and I think around 86 or 87 uh reached out and um about doing a collaboration. Um so that the first thing we ever did together was a show called A Thousand Airplanes on the Roof, which actually it's not really an opera. It's kind of a monologue about Um, a a character who believes they've been abducted by aliens and uh, the monologue was delivered against a instrumental glass ensemble score and then also what we called a visual libretto which was kind of a 3D um, series of projections by um, an artist named uh, Jerome Serlin Um, and and I, I learned kind of an important lesson from, I mean, there's a lot of things I've learned from Phil, but one of the things is, oh, you know, he was maybe 30 years older than me at the time that we first worked together. And so the idea of being a mid-career artist and working with younger artists um, is something that i've tried to do also now as i've become a, a mid-career and an older artist um that there is something in the kind of uh perspective the um uh, the artistic language even the hunger of a uh, young artist which is um very kind of uh, in in invigorating and rejuvenating, I think for an older artist. So I've kind of continued to follow that model. And Philip and I subsequently, I, we've kind of done like a show every decade. And and at this point, we've done five, I think, operas together.
0: And do you find that writing the libretto for an opera is different than writing a play in terms of does it have to be more
1: heightened or more spare? Or... It definitely has to be more spare um because it you know it takes longer to sing I love you than to say I love you <laughs> so there's um it, 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 and I've had the experience of actually adapting uh a couple of my plays into operas um r- most recently and butterfly um and then prior to that uh, two of my one-act plays that that I did with Philip Glass at American Repertory Theater in the 90s or early aughts, I can't remember. Um, and yeah, you've got to cut, I would say, about two-thirds of the of the text um, in order to make uh, an opera libretto, just so that the composer, you know, isn't spending their entire time simply trying to put uh, music to the text. Like the composer needs to have enough freedom to um, do what they need to do musically um so there's that but then there's also um okay where are the where are the duets where are the arias um and if you ever have a, have a chorus um what's the chorus doing so you have to rethink that as well as um just being careful with the lines themselves so that there is There's kind of at least an implicit rhythm in them. Um, And if possible, it's good to end lines on open vowels or at least, you know, sections on open vowels. Um, And yeah, those are some of the things that um, I think about when I'm writing libretto. The primary uh, difference, however, for me is that when I'm writing a play, I think I'm the decider. I'm the person who's in charge um, and other artists um who i'm collaborating with are supporting my vision when i write an opera i actually think the composer is the primary um uh, a, a primary artist and i want to create something that's going to help them to write the best music they can because ultimately the opera is going to rise and fall on the music um yes the story um uh makes the music work in a dramatic setting because otherwise you just have a concert um but um ultimately the the music has to has to stand up for itself in order for the uh, opera to be successful
0: and what is the decision like for you of deciding what kind of music should be added to your plays when they're performed i know face value had some songs in it and
1: yeah I don't um well face value I wrote uh, yeah I just I wrote a little ditty um that was supposed to be you know there was a kind of a musical within the play um and other than that I don't know that I necessarily and and then with um you know with um soft power I wrote the lyrics and I knew Janine Tesori of course was writing the music um But other than that, I, with the, with the straight plays, I don't necessarily, there aren't that many times when I have an impulse for, you know, what needle drop, if you will, should be part of this production. I think that tends to be something that uh, at least the director has input on, if not it being the director's uh, idea.
0: And has there ever been a subject for a play, be it a source material or just an idea that you've started writing but ultimately sort of designed against?
1: Yeah, um, I I was asked to, I was sort of commissioned to write a play about uh, Paul Gauguin. Oh. And I ultimately couldn't do it. Um, and and walked away from it and and you know didn't deliver the commission and it taught me that i think the a play is the one area that i don't want to write for hire oh. um there's you know I've, I've written for hire in just about all other script mediums but the a play continues to be something that's just an expression of my personal concerns and what i happen to be obsessed with and what i need to work through and what i need to discover
0: and so i know a few of the musicals sort of proper that you've written have been with disney theatricals and how did you first sort of come in contact with them with aida
1: yeah i probably had a meeting with uh Tom Schumacher who runs uh Disney Theatrical um the at the time ran it with Peter Schneider um I think I had a meeting with Tom to pitch um you know what you think I what one might think I would pitch which is Mulan um to try to do a Mulan musical and um Tom wasn't so interested in that but subsequently Um, they were looking for a new team to come on to AIDA. AIDA had been done in an initial production um, at Alliance Theater in Atlanta. Um, And they were uh, looking to kind of do a a major reboot of it. And I was asked at that point if I wanted to come on and um, rework the book. So that was it's interesting at this you know I am m- most known for work which is um Asian or Asian American and that generally genuinely does interest me obviously but it's also been uh significant that uh Disney in particular has not looked at me as being just an Asian writer and has um and, and I've written you know Aida and Tarzan for them um, and we're now doing a new AIDA. So um, that is, um, I, it says a lot about um, D- Disney and Tom being uh, quite open-minded about what it is that I can do and what I can bring to a production.
0: And what sort of was it about AIDA that needed to be changed when you came in on it? Oh,
1: wow. That was a long time ago. Um <laughs> I mean, I think tonally, um, it, um, it was a, it was a, uh, trying to remember what the original script was like. Um, I think basically, it the the feeling was that it was a little, a little silly. I, I if I had to just kind of put it all into one word um and that they wanted to kind of elevate the material um so that was that was the kind of gist of the assignment right
0: and then what did appeal to you about Tarzan as a subject to take on and
1: the Tarzan is the funny thing about Tarzan is I think of it as kind of an Asian American story because you know you have um a character who is essentially brought up in a different culture and right, Tarzan is a human and he's brought up by apes he's brought up in this ape culture he thinks he's an ape he totally assimilates to to that and then all of a sudden he meets his own people in the form of Jane um and 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 that gang um and has this huge identity crisis um so I always felt like I could kind of relate to it that way and that was um that was one of the reasons i I thought I could thought I could um take that on
0: and do you find it's a different process when you're writing for a show that's so sort of technically complicated? And
1: yeah, I mean, in some sense, some of the operas are 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 technically complicated that way, too. And I think I have a pretty good head for um, for what the practicalities of a production need to be and um you know that I was just in a discussion yesterday about a, a new opera um and i was saying that well you know if we there's a, like an orchestral section here and that will give the, the ensemble chance to do their quick changes from you know the, these characters to that character and I, and and that's one of the reasons i i like working on stage i think i'm good at working on things for the stage because just the the physical reality of the production um interests me so and i'm always interested in like what can theater do um and the having a big production and having more toys to play with as it were is, um, is really fun. And then how can we make something um, sort of beautiful and expressive and emotional out of these toys? Right. And so I know we're coming down to the end of our time. So I'd love to ask you,
0: what kind of things would you like to be working on next? It could be things that you've already started or just ideas you have
1: or? Well, the 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 thing that's kind of immediate for me at the moment is that I'm um, running a, a and creating a tv show for the first time as as many playwrights are doing so um uh, it's called a billion dollar whale and it's based on a book by two wall street journal reporters about um a, a financial scandal uh, that um, in which this a guy named Jolo, uh, a Malaysian businessman um conned 6 to 8 billion dollars out of the sovereign wealth funds of Malaysia and the United Arab Emirates and used the money to among other things finance the movie Wolf of Wall Street <laughs> um and uh, this Jolo was still at large um he's um been indicted in a bunch of places but um so far eluded capture um so That I'm working on. Um, As I said, we're doing this new AIDA, which has been very exciting. Um, I've basically written a new book for it. Uh, I just got back from Amsterdam. We started rehearsals there with uh, Shelly Williams directing. Um, And it's been great to revisit that material. Um, And then I um, also need to keep working on soft power. Um, We have commercial producers that, are uh, continuing to be very supportive. And I think there's a way to do a kind of post 2020 version of the show that the original production you know, sort of relitigated the 2016 election. And, yet, and we need to do that anymore. <laughs> However, the issue of um, APIs and the role that we can play in the current crisis of democracy, I think, if anything, has become uh, more present in the minds of the public due to the spike in um, you know sadly the spike in anti-asian violence so um those are those are a few projects that i'm um very kind of focused on right now
0: and how do you think that audiences have changed since you were starting in the 80s and what they want to see
1: oh um so where it comes because i'm somebody who um is is largely known for writing about um asian or asian american subject matters um you know this is stuff that was very not mainstream uh when i started out um the the, there hadn't really there'd been one other asian american playwright that had done a show off broadway uh before me and there had never been uh, an Asian or Asian American, that is Asian American or Asian national, you know, like someone who originally is from there, um, playwright on Broadway uh, before M. Butterfly. So um, it's very heartening to me the degree to which audiences are, um, have become open to a wide range of stories. And we are going into an Oscars, for instance, I mean, it's been movies, of course, but, you know, where um everything everything everywhere all all at once at least is a pretty prime contender we'll see what happens um so that's that's uh been heartening and that's been a big change um in terms of different uh, sort of changes in audiences I mean I think it's and other people can talk about this better than I can but you know it's audiences don't want to Prepare much in advance anymore. So it's I think subscriptions are very hard, um, and certainly post pandemic, the pandemic has has just exacerbated all that. Um, and so ways to kind of reach audiences and make new audiences feel welcome, I think, is a big task that is in front of our field
0: and then the final question i'd love to ask is with such a wonderful career what advice would you give to someone just starting out as a playwright
1: yeah i feel that it's i've never quite known how to game this career i mean yes you know harry kondolian gave me some advice and i followed it but really um i i think the wonderful thing about playwriting is that um it is something that uh I don't want to do uh, on uh, uh, for hire. It is something that is uh, an expression of who I am and what I'm thinking about. And I like to say that to students that you know the thing that makes you um, different, uh, the, the thing that makes you idiosyncratic, the thing that makes you weird—that's your superpower as an artist because. That's the thing that you can do that nobody else can do. And if you write that, not only will you have a, a more uh, rich and satisfying experience as an artist, but chances are um, it's going to be more successful as well. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, thank
0: you so much for doing this. It's been such an honor and
1: my pleasure. Thanks for doing what you do.
0: Listeners, thank you for tuning in and remember to come back next time when I am joined by Tony nominee Lainey Kazam. Lainey Kazan appeared on Broadway in The Happiest Girl in the World, Bravo Giovanni, My Favorite Year, The Government Inspector, and the original production of Funny Girl, where she stood by for Barbra Streisand. Her myriad screen credits include Beaches, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and The Nanny, and she also ran a successful chain of nightclubs, You won't want to miss that episode, so make sure to tune back in for that. If you liked what you heard, make sure to leave a review, and thanks for listening.